speaking about the uh, kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture makes it clear that at his birth he is born a king. The Old Testament has much to say concerning Christ's kingship. One of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament speaking of Christ's death, excuse me, birth and kingship is found in Isaiah chapter 9, a passage made famous by Handel's Messiah. And that is actually my text this morning, and I invite you to turn with me there to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, that which is uh, recorded on the front of your bulletin. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. As we look at Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6, we find that there's the announcement of the coming birth of a male child. It tells us in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The coming of the child's birth is a cause for great rejoicing. It starts with a simple preposition for, for. It is reverting back to the reason for a cause of rejoicing. If you look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, it states, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on the land them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And then the ultimate reason, down in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The coming prince comes as a child. A child is born. A male child. A son is given. Born for the benefit of his people. His birth has a larger significance than just for his parents, or even for his immediate family, or even the nation of Israel, but for all the people of God. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And this child will ultimately reign. For it states in verse 6, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Next we have the description of the male child's suitability to reign. Why will this child who grows up be such a wonderful prince? There are some characteristics that are given which make him suitable to reign. Four names or titles or descriptions, if you will, of this coming prince. I say four, not five, for these titles are all come in the form of couplets. They are found in the middle of verse 6. His name shall be called, first couplet, Wonderful Counselor, second, Mighty God, third, Everlasting Father, and fourth, Prince of Peace. That is what makes him such a suitable prince. He begins by saying he's a wonderful counselor. He is awesome in his wisdom. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, it states, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, 
the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. He will be unlike any other ruler that had come before him. The greatest and wisest ruler that Israel had ever known was the person of Solomon. But in the New Testament, we read concerning Jesus, the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with a generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He's described as the mighty God. This title speaks of his deity. It's reminiscent of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, hosts of hosts, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Nehemiah 9.32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, and our fathers. Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, which also speaks of his deity. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, it says, He will be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. Mary asked the question, How will she give birth since she is a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called the Son of God. So he is God in the flesh. And the thought is that he is the supreme defender of his people. He's next described as the everlasting father. It is speaking of the eternality of his reign. His reign will be eternal, for he himself is eternal. It speaks of him as the everlasting father, for that is the type of ruler he will be. He will be like a father to his people. Isaiah 22, verse 21. And I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be as a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Jacob. He's described as the prince of peace. He is a ruler that will bring about peace to this earth. <clears throat> Isaiah 2, 4. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears, their pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The description of his kingship, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and evermore. The king is not only divine, but also human. For it says he will sit on the throne of David. Luke chapter 1 reiterates that same thought. He will be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He's going to be an earthly king, not just a heavenly king. And he's going to fulfill all that David was to establish as king over Israel. The words increase of his government and of peace speaks to the fact that his, his kingship is going to be far superior to that of David's. 
Notice the beginning of verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. It's not simply that the, the kingdom will not end, but that the, the, surpa the surpassing greatness of that kingdom shall have no end. That the kingdom that is established under Christ will be far superior to any kingdom known up until that time. He will not only inaugurate the kingship, but will establish it for all eternity future. Notice middle of verse 7. He will sit on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it. The kingdom will never come to an end. It says to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The reason this kingdom will never come to end is twofold. First, because he is everlasting himself. There is no successor. There is no one to inherit this kingdom after the Christ, for the Christ is eternal. But in this particular verse, the other reason that it has no end is because he will uphold it with justice and righteousness. Eventually, the kingdom was taken away from Israel because they had not served God, because they had walked in unrighteousness and unholiness. And so God brought an end to the kingdom, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, as later it was divided. But because this king rules in righteousness and holiness, it has no end. It will never be taken from him, but he will reign forever and ever. Okay, I know I did that pretty quickly. But what I want to focus on is the end of verse 7. The surety of the kingship. Let me read all of verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now here's the assurance. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Verses 6 and 7 are a prediction, a prophecy, if you will, of that which is to come. However, it is much more than simply a prediction or a prophecy. It is a promise. There's a difference between a prediction and a promise. The one making a prediction has no vested interest as to whether it comes to pass or not. They have no authority or power over whether it comes to pass or not. They are just making a prediction. They are making a statement about what is going to happen into the future. Uh, don't like to compare the prophets of the Old Testament to a medium looking into a crystal ball, but the idea is that the person who makes the prediction has no authority to actually bring it to pass. The prophets declared what was going to happen. They were either false, if it didn't happen, or true, 
if it did happen, but they didn't bring it to pass. God is the one who fulfills the promises of his word. God is the one who makes the promise. The surety is that this promise comes from the Almighty God, the Lord of hosts. It is certain for God himself is going to bring this to pass. It is certain for the Lord, if you notice, is in all caps, which is the name for Jehovah, the self-existent one. The uh, ensemble sung about him this morning using the words, the great I am. The great I am is the self-existent one, the one who is not dependent upon anyone or anything for anything. This Lord of hosts, this self-sufficient one who rules over all things is going to bring it to pass. It is certain. And it is certain not simply because he is Lord, and not simply because he is the Lord of hosts, or even that it is his word and he cannot lie. But the certainty is also expressed in that simple little word that comes before the Lord of hosts. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal, meaning that he in all of his innermost being wants to see this come to pass. He's zealous for this. He is not simply desirous of this. He is eager to see it come to pass. God is not reluctant or hesitant about this particular decision. There's no downside, if you will. God himself is anxious for the establishment of this kingdom. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The reason I chose this particular portion of scripture this morning to speak on is because I don't think that the kingship of Christ gets adequate shrift today as we think of his birth. The Old Testament saints were so looking forward to and longing for the establishment of his kingdom that they lost sight of the fact that the coming king would have to die so that the people would be fit and prepared to enter that kingdom. Now think about that for a moment. Almost to a person, what the Old Testament saints focused their attention on was this coming kingdom. The kingdom that would be established by this prince of peace. They were so focused on the coming kingdom that when Jesus appeared and then spoke of his coming death, rejected the idea that he was the Messiah because they were looking for this earthly kingdom. They were looking for the establishment of this time of perfect peace on earth. And they were so directed in that point of view that they minimized and lost 
the reality that the fact that this coming king was going to have to die in order for that kingdom to be established. That is not hidden in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53 speaks with great clarity concerning this one who's going to come and have to die. And it is by his righteousness that we will inherit the kingdom. It is there, but they lost sight of it. I would say to you, in our day and age, I think we have done just the opposite. We have so focused on Christ's coming in order to set us free from our sins, and we have so celebrated the forgiveness of sins that we enjoy, and the fact that now we are in a right relationship with God, that we have minimized this coming kingdom. That we've let it drift from our view. That it's no longer focal in our understanding of future events. The Bible teaches us that the kingdom is inaugurated in stages. There is the present aspect of the kingdom where Christ rules in the hearts of his people. There is a coming millennial kingdom where Christ will rule over all the peoples of the earth. And then there is the eternal kingdom that comes when the new heaven and new earth are established. The emphasis of the New Testament is on this future kingdom. And I think we need to restore that emphasis. Now, I'm going to look at a lot of verses. You don't need to turn there. But I've divided them up into four categories. First, the risen Christ spoke to his disciples concerning the coming kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he met with his disciples over a period of 40 days. And the summary statement of what Jesus had to say to his disciples during that 40-day interval was that he spoke to them about the kingdom. So what was their take? What did they come away with after he spoke to them about the kingdom? Acts 1.6. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He just taught them again about the kingdom. So he said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He didn't say, Man, I just taught you for 40 days. Don't you get it? There is no future kingdom. Don't you get it? When I died, that's it. That's the kingdom. No, he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He didn't say, there is no future kingdom. He said, you're not to know when it is established. Secondly, the coming kingdom was an important element of the gospel that the apostles preached. The good news that the apostles preached was the good news 
of the coming kingdom and the opportunity to be a part of that kingdom. Now just listen to the gospel that the apostles preached. I'll take you through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Acts 14, 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Not that we are in it, but we will enter it through much trials and difficulties. Acts 19.8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 20.25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I, bore, I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. When Paul met with the Ephesian elders, he described his ministry as proclaiming the kingdom of God. Acts 28, 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening. This is Paul in his imprisonment at Rome. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. Acts 28, 31. Proclaiming the kingdom of God. What they were proclaiming was the good news that a kingdom is coming. Christ, by his death and resurrection, makes it possible for us to enter into that kingdom. That's John chapter 3. We are told by the Apostle Paul that we are to minister teach and preach in light of this coming kingdom. Listen to the words of 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, diligently, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, etc., etc. I charge you in light of Christ's coming and his kingdom. The resurrection of our bodies takes place so that we can participate in that earthly kingdom. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, who had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead will not come to life until the thousand years are ended. This is the first resurrection. We are resurrected in order to participate in this earthly kingdom. The great rejoicing in the book of Revelation is the establishment of Christ's kingdom. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices and saying, "The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever." It's an announcement that the kingdom has begun, not that the kingdom always existed. The kingdom has come. 
Christ shall reign forever and ever. Listen to the words of Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. Now it has come. That's future to us. That kingdom is coming to earth. Revelation depicts the kingdom during the new heaven and new earth. Then the angel showed me the river water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it goes on and on. It concludes with these words. And night will be no more. There will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God, the Lord, will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Future. They will reign forever and ever. Remember the words of Isaiah 9, 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do that. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us not lose sight of we are celebrating the birthday of a king. A real king. Don't let the fact that he rules in the heart of his people to deflect from the great hope which is the eternal kingdom. He did more than come to take away our personal sins. He did that so that we could enter his kingdom. But Jesus Christ came to redeem this earth, all of creation. All of creation will be changed. We don't see that now. The lion will lay down with the lamb. There will be no more pollution. There will be no more sinfulness. There will be no more reason to cry. There will be no other. That is yet future to us. And Jesus Christ rose again from the dead so that we would rise from the dead. And the reason we rise from the dead is so that we can participate in this earthly kingdom. And it will last forever and ever and ever. So I say to you, are you awaiting a kingdom? Are you longing for that day in which Christ returns and sets everything right? That's still before us. The cross is wonderful. We delight in the cross, but the cross is a means to the end. It's not the end. He died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, we will see him come in like manner. He is going to descend to this earth. And when he does, the second stage of the kingdom is established. And at the end of that second stage, then there's the new heaven and new earth and the final kingdom. And that's what we look forward to. I said in my Sunday school class, my favorite hymn of all hymns is a Christmas hymn, and it's number 120. 
And I'd like you to look at some words with me. Number 120, first stanza. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. Okay, so this is cause of rejoicing, not just for us, but for all heaven of all nature. Two, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods Rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. In the book of Romans, it says that, that the creation is groaning with utterance. This fallen world is looking for a time in which all of the sin that has come upon this earth, the consequences of man's sin has affected the animal world, has affected all of creation. And he is going to deal with all of that Verse 3, no more let sorrows, sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Okay? If you remember at the fall, that's when thorns were created to frustrate man's work. God is going to remove the thorns. All of the acts of consequences of sin is going to be removed from this earth. We don't see that yet. But it's coming. Don't just... Make that one big metaphor. Just don't spiritualize that in some way that it doesn't come to, tr come to pass. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's intent. This is God's purpose. He's going to bring it to pass. It had to go through the cross. But the cross isn't the end of the story. Our dying and being with Christ is not the end of the story. He's coming back. And when he does, we are resurrected. And then we see the kingdom in its fullness. Verse 4. He rules the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. We're going to see how blessed it is to live in a perfect kingdom in absolute righteousness and holiness. The peace that will come. We can only imagine what life would be like if there were no sin. We are going to experience that one day. Because Christ came not simply so that our sins could be forgiven. But our sins be removed. Abolished. Never to sin anymore. When that kingdom comes. May we say, even with the Apostle John, even so come, Lord Jesus. So, Brother uh, Brandt, if you would come and lead us in joy to the world, which is a future joy, but it's based on the fact that this king has come and all that God had purposed is being worked out. It had to go through the cross. It had to go through the death. It had to go through the ascension. And it's going to come to fruition when the Lord returns.